Welcome to Farming God, a podcast for those of eclectic spirituality. On earlier episodes, I have talked about my time in Wisconsin, delivering firewood to state parks throughout the Kettle Moraine. If you want to hear more about that, I've linked the shows titled Ice Age Trail, Cardinal Directions, and Silicon Valley Fox. I'm delivering firewood to campgrounds in eastern Wisconsin. It's quiet out here, in the land the glaciers carved. Until you cross the wrong fence, park incorrectly at the hamburger house, or pull out a microphone at the wrong time. Life follows a sequence of expected norms. Discuss the weather with campers, the Green Bay Packers with bartenders and ignore people at gas stations. Wave politely to neighbors, but don't distract them from yard work. This is America's heartland, home of the free. Last week, my boss forwarded a private order for a new campground, Greenbush State Park. New clients are exciting. It gives me a chance to explore new back roads, old collapsed barns and surviving dairy farms. My instructions were specific. Go to campsite number nine, find Boris and stand up for yourself. The entrance to the campground was framed by a canopy of yellow orange maple leaves. As I wound through the hills, the road became narrower and turns sharper. With a truck full of wood, I drove slow, 15 miles per hour. At campsite one, I lost cell service. Three, the radio went fuzzy. Four, an audible static. Six, still no humans. Never saw site seven and eight. Campsite nine, my destination. I came to a dead end. Put the truck in park and stepped out into a sunny clearing encircled by 50-foot pines. In the center, Three shirtless men sat at a picnic table. One stood up and announced his name, Boris. We talked business, then Boris invited me to the picnic table, where the two others chewed on ribs, sipped vodka, and spoke Russian. It was hard to ignore the bulky holsters hanging off their waists. They weren't guns, but they weren't phones either. Boris poured me a shot, Ralph gave me a slice of pork fat, and Jean cut some sour pickles into bite-sized cubes. To good health, we toasted. More vodka? Can't fly with just one wing. We were all standing now. Boris and Ralph broke off in Russian. Jean and I discussed music and Russia. The latter, he doesn't like talking about. He still has family there, and they will never have as good of a life as him. It was noon, and seemingly much brighter than when I arrived. Boris offered me more alcohol. This time I had enough courage to say no. It was time to deliver wood for tonight's party. I started the truck and was about to pull away when Boris appeared in the driver's side window and said, Come back at seven. You'll meet the mafia. The rhythm of rural life was broken. I had a party to attend. 
So I slicked my hair back, put on my boots, and bought a bottle of vodka, the expensive kind, Sky. That night, I returned to the same windy road. This time it was dark, but no longer deserted. Cars filled the campsites, and people patrolled the roads. I parked at a distance, grabbed my liter of vodka, and approached an unlikely scene. A few hundred people sat quietly in lawn chairs, wrapped in blankets under the cool, starry night. Festoons hung overhead, and kids played in the background. Boris, now wearing a denim tuxedo and a fedora, introduced each performer, and one by one, musicians played Russian folk tunes. My friends from earlier had transformed from macho meat eaters to acoustic sentimentalists. No longer shirtless, Gene took the stage with a 12-string guitar and a smile the crowd couldn't resist. Twice a year, this group of Russian-Americans come together to play music. This year, the theme was a celebration of the 100-year anniversary of the Russian Revolution, a historical period I am not qualified to discuss. So the most recent book is called The Russian Revolution, 1905 to 1921. But Dr. Mark Steinberg is, as history professor and director of graduate studies at the University of Illinois, he recently published a history of Russia's revolutionary era titled Russian Revolution, 1905 to 1921. In brief, the Russian Revolution culminated in 1917 with two separate government overthrows. In February, the Tsarist autocracy was dismantled and replaced by the provisional government. When the provisional government, led by large capitalist and noble aristocracy, didn't offer sufficient social relief, the Bolsheviks, led by Lenin, marched on Petrograd and overthrew the provisional government. In his book, Dr. Steinberg tells the story of the revolution in terms of individual experiences. I asked him if common experiences really existed during such a tumultuous time. That's an interesting question. Um, one of the threads, one of the commonalities, is 
that there are no threads or commonalities, uh, that there are so many different ways that even not just the events made sense to people. Uh, of course, people come from different classes. They live in different parts of the country. They have different ethnicities. They have different ideologies. So obvious, that's an obvious form uh, of conflict. But even if they agree on something really basic, like we're for the revolution or we're for a revolution, and what we want to win is freedom. That's probably the most common word used in the course of 1917, also in 1905. Uh, if you got 10 people together, they would not agree on what freedom is. Even if you got 10 workers together or 10 peasants together, so you, uh, you, you factor in class, they would still not necessarily agree. So on the one hand, so disagreement is enormous, even around a key idea like freedom or Soviet power, which was the big argument that a lot of people favored by October uh, of 1917. On the other hand, they do agree in the sense of people wanted bread, they wanted peace, they wanted peasants wanted land, people wanted freedom, uh, whatever that means. A lot of people would say they also wanted justice. So in a certain sense, they agreed. A lot of people, not everybody. Uh, but there was a lot of different ways of understanding and experiencing those ideas. How did these initial goals of land and bread align with the results of the revolution? Well, that's complicated. I guess it depends on who you are. Um, if you take the three big slogans that the Bolsheviks used, although that's not the only thing people were attracted to, bread, peace, and land. In terms of bread, which is to say the cities shouldn't be starving, that workers should have enough to eat, preferably even good wages. The Civil War, things got worse because it's a civil war. So in the, this period between uh, 1918 and 1921, economic conditions were horrible. But by 1923, they were as good as they were before World War I. So in that sense, it was a high priority for the new gov government, not the provisional government, which didn't succeed, but the, but the Bolshevik government did ultimately provide people with a modicum standard of living uh, after the disasters of the Civil War and famine and the like. Um, in terms of peace, uh, at all costs, they wanted to get, uh, the Bolsheviks wanted to get Russia out of World War One, And that will maybe we could argue about the different failures of the provisional government, the group that came into power, liberals, moderate socialists in February after the czar. Now, one of the things they could not do and did not do is get Russia out of the war uh, for all sorts of reasons we could talk about. And so the Bolsheviks did get Russia out of the war. Unfortunately, a new war started, which was the Civil War, uh, but that was which was over by 1921. But one can argue they didn't start the Civil War, but they expected it and they were ready for it. So people got war again, uh, and eventually they didn't. And from the 1920s until World War II, uh, Russia was not engaged in, in major international conflict. So they got peace. Uh, and land, the Bolsheviks were very clever. Uh, Lenin was very clever. Again, the provisional government didn't provide people with uh, land. They promised to do land reform, but said, but we have to... It'll take time. We've got to look at the laws. We've got to consider everybody's interests. And the Bolsheviks, in particular Lenin, said, actually, the peasants are already taking the land. Let them take it. 
even though in the long term, Bolsheviks wanted some form of collective agriculture, they said the peasants want the land, let them take it. And Lenin even said, I realize this is a program of another party, the Socialist Revolutionaries, but we're a democratic, that's what he said, we're a democratic uh, revolution, and therefore if the peasants want to simply take the land, run it on their own, throw out the landlords, go ahead. And that's what happened. So in that sense, people, people did get those three things uh, with some difficulty. Can you talk about the changing balance of freedom and security? Uh, <laughs> that's a big question. Um, <laughs> I think it's so relevant so, to today. And I'm... It is. It is. And people still debate what is the meaning of freedom, <laughs> right? Um, people argue about it today. And if you look at any of these years, but, but let's say focus in on exactly 100 years ago, uh, 1917, or even more specifically, since we're, you know, we're really on the anniversary of October, you know, the moments when people, before the Bolsheviks came to power, there was a pretty fierce debate about what freedom was about. Everybody was for freedom. Some people felt that the provisional government, the liberals, hadn't given them the freedom they wanted. Others said they had. And I would say the parameters of what people argued about was what some philosophers would later call positive and negative freedom, or we sometimes say the difference between freedom and liberty. So negative freedom is leave us alone and let us do whatever we want. Uh, for peasants, it was let us take the land and don't, don't interfere. Don't tell us, don't collectivize us, don't get, charge us high taxes. Um, just let us grow and market whatever we want. To them, that was the heart of freedom. Um, for a lot of workers, it was, how can you be free if uh, you still are under the thumb of landlords, just like, uh, sorry, of, of foremen and owners, just like peasants didn't want to be under the thumb of landlords, workers didn't want to be under the control of owners and foremen. And so for a lot of them, freedom actually meant creating a system of socialism where they would be able to act in some collective way and run their own factories. Now, that's not what we would consider freedom. Uh, often freedom is free, to, free enterprise, but for them, free enterprise was not freedom. It was the opposite of freedom. So they're beginning to judge it as a positive notion, that it should be a society that is better, that is happier. Others would go even further. There were a lot of people, especially lower-class Russians, uh, in the cities, uh, who would say, well, you want freedom, how can you be free if, well, they said this during the war, how can you be free if you have your soldier sent off to the war? So peace was part of being free. You can't tell us to go fight a war. That, that's a violation of freedom. Freedom is, how can you be free, workers would say, if, we are, if we're not educated and we can't afford education? So free education is part of freedom. Again, not our normal individualistic way of freedom is liberty for the individual to pursue happiness. This is a vision of freedom is uh, the guarantee of happiness and the conditions that would allow a happiness. So education, uh, food, um, good wages, uh, as well as the other freedoms. Don't repress us. Don't take away our right to organize, to speak freely, to assemble the usual civil liberties. They embraced all that, but many, many people thought freedom also meant these positive things that would, again, not just allow you to pursue happiness, but actually 
would guarantee happiness. It's not enough to just give us liberty. You also have to guarantee that we're going to live without hunger, without war, without violence and the like. So there was a real sense that um, security for citizens, for social security, um, public security was really important. And that included a concern about violence. There was a lot of street violence during these years and a lot of criminality. Criminals who were not socialists or liberals or anything, they just saw, oh, we're, we have freedom. We, we can mug people on the streets and we can rob stories, stores. And there was this sense of um, liberty becoming anarchy. And so a lot of people on both right and left thought security in society, ending anarchy, was really important. And that was the job of the state to do. And then, but you ask about state security, um, that was certainly the argument the Bolsheviks used in justifying civil war, in justifying the draft, in justifying more um, authoritarianism or authoritarian control within factories, eventually in taking land back from the peasants and collectivizing, is if we don't do this, Russia won't be strong, or the Soviet Union as it eventually became known by 1924. Russia won't be strong, and therefore to protect our freedoms, we need to have a strong state, and therefore we need to take away some of your freedoms. This was definitely a debate. Um, most of the people in the state and party leaned in the direction of security, of protecting the state as the first priority. Most of the people in the population, workers and peasants, said, you know, the real priority is our social conditions, not less concerned about state strength and security. And there was a huge opposition movement. There were protests against growing authoritarianism by the end of the uh, Civil War. Uh, so freedom, security, another um, idea that's uh, kind of in our face at the moment is the role of media. And I'm wondering how you make sense of the role of media leading up to and during the revolution. Hmm. Well, of course, they, they, they didn't have Facebook or television. <laughs> Uh, so it's a different media environment. But what they did have uh, were newspapers uh, that were very widely read. Everybody's reading newspapers. So in the years up to World War I, Russia had a system of censorship that was not so strict, uh, especially after the 1905 revolution when the law changed. And so, you know, I've spent a lot of time reading newspapers in those years and Russian newspapers from the time. And it's surprising how many ideas, especially ideas about important ideas about the need for freedom, about the need for civil rights, about, one might say, philosophical ideas about the dignity of every human being and therefore the need to have a society that respects that dignity, that grants human rights, and they were using the phrase human rights. So these really important ideas that ultimately got fed into notions of freedom and justice 
and for many it was about socialism, not everybody. Uh, those ideas were there in, in the press. World War I, it was much more restricted because state security was the first priority, and therefore you couldn't – you could say those ideas, but you couldn't criticize the government for not giving them. And this was a dictatorial authoritarian government under Nicholas II. Uh, he would have agreed. This, you know, freedom and democracy were not good things. He argued. After 1917, after February, when the Tsar fell, there is absolutely no censorship. Nothing. Uh, you could publish anything you want if you could have enough money to print it. You could say anything you want at a public meeting of the streets. And one might say, part of the media then was you go out on the streets and you listen to speeches. Uh, everybody was talking. In fact, every visitor to Russia took in that period during 1917, foreign visitors, all said, I can't believe all the talking. It's like people never stop talking. They don't sleep. They don't eat. They just talk all the time. And that, in a way, is a type of media environment of a sort. Uh, but a lot of their ideas are coming from what they're reading in, in, in the press. So it is complete freedom. So it's a wonderful time you know, if you want to know what people were thinking, because all you have to do is read Russian and read all the things they were saying. After October, when the Bolsheviks came to power, it was a big shock to a lot of people when they argued that it was uh, dangerous to allow people to criticize the Bolshevik government because the security of freedom, we need to protect our freedoms, we need to protect Soviet power, which is the people's power. So in the name of democracy, in the name of protecting the accomplishments, uh, censorship was reinstituted uh, against enemies of the revolution. As, but, of course, they defined who those enemies were. This led to a great deal of criticism. Throughout the 20s, uh, people continued to complain about the lack of press freedom. So the media environment changes, uh, becomes more restrictive. And then, of course, Stalin in the late um, 20s and 30s, creates no freedom whatsoever. So the 20s is relatively open, uh, but there's censorship. Uh, later it gets worse. What sort of parallels do you see between the Russian Revolution and kind of the current geopolitical climate? Oh, that's a big one. You know, I'm a historian, so parallels are not always precise because history doesn't repeat history. Humans are the same. Humans experience and do certain things that are comparable, but every situation is different because of what precedes it of different countries. So I'm always a little hesitant to say parallels. However, in a sort of, one might say, human sense, I think one of the things that has struck me, and I teach a lot of different histories besides Russia, is this persistent, stubborn, and a lot of philosophers have noticed this, human inclination to believe the way things are are not the way things have to be. That if there's lack of freedom, if there's a lack of justice, if there's a lack of, um, of peace, of security for the human individual, the human person, a lack of respect for people, which is a really key idea, uh, you're not treating me with respect, Russians said. You're treating us like animals. We need to live, treat, be treated like human beings. There is something almost universal across history and humanity in that sense. And if you look at our 
I don't know if it's our geopolitical situation, but it's certainly the situation that's happening in many individual countries, not least the United States, are people are still saying, despite years of it not seeming to work out for many people, still saying being treated like a human being with respect is the most important thing. And I think we could create a world, otherwise people wouldn't protest. We can create a world where people are respected as human beings. Um, and I think one sees that, one sees it in Black Lives Matter, one sees it in the recent kneeling protests, uh, one sees it in much of uh, the 20th century. I, I really liked something in your intro. You said, history is inclined towards catastrophe, but in its nature is the possibility, however elusive and rare, for deliverance, redemption, and salvation. Very nice. You read that, yes. yes. That's the gist. I, I quite agree. History <laughs> is inclined to catastrophe. Well, again, but I, human human hope is is really human hope that you could have something other than catastrophe. That there's redemption is one of the most impressive things about humanity. I relaxed and tried to fit into the crowd. I thought it was working until a woman asked me in English, Are you Irish? St. Patrick's Day has taught me that I am, so I nodded. I thought so, she said. You have Irish cheeks. But I'm Irish just as much as I am German, as much Polish as I am Scandinavian, and as much Slovakian as I am Chippewa. In short, I'm just an American, pursuing happiness amongst the free, predictably asking what's more important, justice or peace. Субтитры 
Вроде все перед ними, а им не видать. Вроде все перед ними, а им не слыхать. Говорили зря они все зря в пень. Им давали свободу. Только взять было лень. И опять не с теми мы дружим. Опять не с теми враги. Не тому Богу, наверное, мы служим. Титы черные сужают груди. Thanks to Dr. Mark Steinberg, author of Russian Revolution, 1905 to 1921. I have a link to his book in the show notes. Also, thanks to the Midwest Bard Club for their hospitality and the hat. There's a picture of this hat at farminggod.org. There, you can also sign up for the monthly newsletter that everyone is talking about.